Hey there, welcome to Sunday Night School, and you can probably, possibly, hear the washing machine and dryer in the background, and it's funny, because that's actually perfect for what I'm going to talk about, which is the idea of phantoms in your head. You know, I use that term phantoms to refer to just those voices in your head, those theoretical people, they might even be people you know, but when you imagine somebody giving you some sort of counterpoint or arguing with you, and it all takes place in your head, and just bringing up the washing machine reminded me of that, because I'm like, oh yeah, there's, this, there's something in my head that says one of the people who might hear this show is going to hear that in the background and either be upset or it needs to be explained somehow, as if you don't know what a washing machine sounds like, you know? As if somebody who potentially would listen to my show and pick up on the sound of a washing machine in the background wouldn't know what that is and that I need to somehow mention it. Almost like a disclaimer. I mean, that's what it is. It's, it's a disclaimer. I'm sorry about the washing, the washing machine. People are sensitive to that, though. You know, since this is just a show now where I talk about comments I read, like a month ago I had watched this... Uh, it's a show that a, a former mafia member does with this random guy who's, who's like his producer, I guess. But it's a very low-budget show. Very poor-quality webcams, not professional microphones. The audio levels are always messed up where one of the guys is way louder than the other. But that's sort of the charm in it because it actually makes you pay attention more. You know, when everything's not just compressed and, and just perfectly melted together in your face, in your ears... I think you, you tend to listen more. It, it used to be like, cause I used to hear people who were, I used to hear audiophiles talk about writing the volume knob. You know, we think having to turn music up or down as we listen to it, we treat that like it's a problem, like it's this major inconvenience, and it can be. Like if the dynamics are too insane, if something is poorly produced or just designed for a certain effect, like going from something really quiet to really loud. Like you don't want to sit there in, from, in front of the volume knob. But I think we've gotten so far from that. We're so far away from that. You know, we truly do have everything just presented to us now. And it gets more and more that way, especially with the internet. That it's like the idea of that sort of interactive experience. Like, and not even just the writing the volume knob. <laughs> writing the volume knob. Not even just that, but... Even just the fact that, like, if we have to, like, pay extra attention to hear somebody talk on a show because their microphone is lower, that can easily feel like an inconvenience. And, and speaking of that show, that mafia show, there was one episode where one of the guy's mics was really low. You know, it, it was very low. Really very low. And I saw this comment where someone was like, I am so sick of every single episode. The volume is messed up. I'm, I think I'm just going to stop listening. You know, it, this person was, it was like a paragraph, an unhinged paragraph about how upset this person was over the fact that this low-budget DIY show has audio issues. And, and nothing like grating. It's not like a loud feedback. It's not like high-pitched sine waves are like entering your ears as you're listening to. It's not like something painful. It's just, oh, you have to pay a little bit more attention while you're listening. And sometimes the audio is inconsistent. 
But you can see like that, how entitled people are in that way, where it's like you're getting a free show, and you truly have every option available. You have so many different options as to what you can watch and pay attention to, and you chose this. And this is this is a cliche argument, but I, I, it can't be lost, you know, because it's easy to lose it. You can just see the way that people have lost it in the way they function, in the way they re- they react to things, respond to things. And but but it truly is. You're choosing to look at this. You're choosing to pay attention to this. You have every option in the world available. You know, unless something has been removed from circulation, unless something has been censored, you have every option available. But you chose this, and you feel so entitled that if there's a minor audio issue, if one of the hosts, if his microphone is a little lower, you become unglued. And that kind of thing is amazing to see, where it's just somebody who's truly unglued over a free show, have a low-budget free show having audio issues. But, um, you know, so it's, it's easy to imagine those phantoms because you see that they exist. Like, you have those phantoms in your head of that person who's going to say this, that person who's going to say, oh, my God. You're not a you're not a professional if you if you're running the dryer in the background when you're doing a podcast. You're not a professional. Yeah, a professional. You can imagine that person because those people exist and you know them. And then there's strangers who will do that too. But the thing about those phantoms is like you can easily think of those as a negative thing. Like you'll hear people talk about it. I mean, I have to imagine almost every conscious person has these phantoms who enter their brain. And not even just when you say something or do something. Not even just when you do something, like when you put something out into the world and you know that somebody could come out of the woodwork and say something or criticize it or criticize you. Not even just that, because a lot of this goes on inside of your own head where you'll hear people talk about it. They'll say like, oh, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a millennial, millennial joke, a joke among, among millennials where they're like, oh, you know, I, I get in arguments in the shower. When I, whenever I take a shower, I, I get in arguments in my own head about, you know, it, people will often say it's in the shower or when they're laying down to go to bed. And that's anxiety. You know, a lot of this does revolve around anxiety where they're imagining saying something or they're imagining somebody confronting them about something. Like they're imagine sometimes it's someone you know, you can imagine a specific person you know confronting you. And so this, this whole illusion, this whole drama plays out in your brain where it's like, well, I, if I said this and they said this, I'd say this. And sometimes, you know, the most comical version of that is when it turns into like a self-defense fantasy where it's like, and then I'd punch him in the face. And then, well, if, that, if he tried to get me in, you know, because guys will do this where it's like, well, yeah, then if he tried to get me in an arm bar, I'd do this. And I because that's kind of like a physical phantom. Which I don't really, th- I, I very rarely think in those terms. And when I do, it, it is self-defensive though. It's like, I'll do that sometimes if I'm out walking. I'll think like, if I, if I kind of get a vibe in the air, that's sort of like, I hope no one messes with me. I hope no one messes with me. But then you end up visualizing people messing with you. And like what you do, I punch him. I punch him right here. See this? This is called a mouth. And I punch him right in the mouth. Punch him right in the mouth. You know, it's easy to do that with like these physical phantoms. I wonder how much women do those. You know, just talking so much lately about like dynamics between 
men and women as I see them, I do wonder, because a lot of the women I know, a lot of my women friends, like they'll, they'll joke about that kind of stuff of like imagining what somebody says to them. Like I know that part of it, like the, the psychological part, I know that's just universal. But I do wonder about like physical phantoms where it's like you're imagining like what you do. Oh, if, dude, if you ever mess with my family, because that's what that sort of guy is saying. Like the, the sort of guy who, who just his default, like he practically wears a T-shirt. Nobody said anything about his family. But he's like, if you ever say anything about my family, if you ever mess with my family, I'll kick your ass. You know, they'll say that unprompted, and that's the result of phantoms. Like, they're imagining somebody saying something about their family, even though nobody has. And so they just kind of default to that. And that's very primal, you know. In that case, it's very primal. It's like, if you mess with my clan, you know, if you mess with my people. And part of that's because that's expected of somebody, especially a guy. I mean, women do that, too. Moms will do that. If you ever mess with my family, but... You know, part of that's because that's a, a reality. Like somebody could mess with your family, but you go out in the world with that as your default. And part of that's because you've entertained the idea of these phantoms going after your family. But that can easily kind of become your reality if it goes unchecked. I mean, there's a reason why that's associated with anxiety and pro- like if a problem, especially I know this happens with work. Like if you're anticipating some sort of problem at work you can easily take a shower and your mind wanders and you're imagining like, oh, if my boss says this, I'm going to say this. And then if so and so this, you know, so it often has roots in something very real that could potentially happen. And sometimes it's the, the product of you thinking like, I'm going to finally say that thing that I've been meaning to say. And that prompts you to imagine these counterpoints. But the thing is, even though that way of thinking, like being consumed with that, even though that's a product of anxiety and it's not good for you. And most people who talk about that don't talk about it like it's healthy. It's like, oh, no, I got lo- uh, I couldn't sleep because my mind was just racing thinking about hypothetical scenarios of what someone else might say to me and what I would do and then what they would do. You know, we don't think of that as a healthy phenomenon. But, you know, one of the points I try to really hammer home in doing this show is just that a lot of these feelings that we think of as purely negative, be they jealousy you know, what people call hatred, a lot of these have roots in something functional. And just because it can get out of whack doesn't mean that there isn't a function. And the phantoms have a function. And it should be obvious, but I do feel it needs to be said, which is that, you know, when you imagine that phantom who is arguing with you, what you're doing is you're imagining counterpoints. You're imagining, I mean, it's almost like a a courtroom in your mind where you're imagining, like, the points someone would make against you. And sometimes they're just insults. You know, I know a lot of this, a lot of these phantoms, it's just people insulting you. It's very, uh, it's kind of got this hostility to it. And in that case, you don't even have to entertain it. Like, there's no use to thinking that way. There's no use to imagining these hypothetical insults somebody could make like i mean no i mean i shouldn't even say that it's it's not useless to do that if it if it involves some kind of flaw you have or that you feel you have sometimes imagining like someone attacking you for that reason can either help you kind of just accept it or do something about it like if you're a fat person and you're imagining these hypothetical scenarios where someone calls you fat which a lot of fat people do 
Like I wouldn't even, you know, I mention a lot that I grew up fat and, and I'm really not preoccupied with it. It's just kind of an interesting fact because fatness has become so, it's just so widely discussed. It's so politicized. So I feel as a, as a former fat person, my perspective is relevant, okay? See, I'm imagining a phantom even right now, like, challenging me on this. I have so many phantoms, but I put them to use. Those phantoms are my slaves helping me, helping my system work, at, work itself out. But with that, it's like, when you are fat, like, you almost imagine that somebody's going to point it out. Like, you have a lot of phantoms. Like, and that's just insecurity in a nutshell. A lot of what insecurity is is imagining what other people could or would potentially say to you. And if you have some sort of, if you have something that you think is an obvious flaw, you end up very preoccupied with it. And that can color your reality. That can you that can make you think that people are like looking for an opportunity to say that to you, to do that. And uh so that's something to be aware of. So it's like if you're imagining hypothetical insults somebody could make, and it's something you can change about yourself, something you don't like that you can change, that might be a, a reason to change it. That might be a reason to do it because it, it isn't healthy to imagine people insulting you constantly, but people do that. A lot of people go through life just imagining these phantoms insulting them. But if you can get past that aspect of it, like of your feelings and, and what people might say to you and the mean things people might do, it's healthy to think of the counterpoint. Like if you have a belief, let's frame it around that. If you have a belief or an opinion, it is extremely helpful to imagine phantoms challenging you. But you want to imagine intelligent phantoms. <laughs> you, you want to imagine people who make good points. And sometimes people don't want that. Sometimes people deprive themselves of that. And people do that in the flesh with their friends, with what they look at with the, the news sources that they choose to look at, with where they receive their information. Some people are like, I don't even want to imagine any counterpoint because I'm right. And anybody who could potentially ever challenge my point is just wrong or evil. You know, some people do that, you know, that way, but they do it in their own heads as well. Where it's like when they imagine somebody challenging them on a point, they tend to think that, that that's undeserved or that that person is, that that phantom is stupid. Like people tend to imagine stupid phantoms where it's like, oh, you know, yeah, but if I said this, the person who challenges me on that, it's going to make a really stupid point that shows how they're brainwashed and they don't know the truth. You know, there's a tendency to frame it that way. But if you imagine those phantoms making really good points, you strengthen your own argument. And that's just, you know, that's just being a rational thinker. And, and I'm not attached to rationality. I don't think that we can live a life where we are purely rational. I think we, our experiences are too varied. And there are too many questions in life to be overly attached to rationality. But when it comes to, like, what your beliefs are, you know, how you go about the world, you know, you want it to be rational. If it's possible to be rational, I mean... It's preferable. It makes life easier if you can come up with a concrete rationality for why you're saying what you're saying. And what helps with that internally is imagining what people might say. 
And they might be, again, they might be people you know, because I, I know that sometimes I'll, I will have a thought and I can imagine a very specific person I know and what they would say. Whether they would truly say that, I mean, people surprise you sometimes. Because that's the thing, we're talking about illusions here. Even though they might be influenced by reality, or, you know, the closest thing we have to it, you're not always right about that. But often you are. You know, like I was saying, I think it was yesterday, about with the shooting of the Proud Boy in Olympia yesterday, I can imagine exactly who I know in town would be talking about it, what they would be saying about it. I can just clearly imagine it, and I'd be willing to bet money I'd be right. It's too bad I can't gamble on that. I'm not a gambler, but it's too bad I can't gamble on that because I would. But I also might be surprised. You know, you leave that open for yourself. You don't want to, like, seal... You don't want to... um, You don't want to seal yourself off from other possibilities when you're thinking about, you know, people's beliefs and who they are, especially in a time where a lot of people are hiding what they actually believe. You know, you don't want to just condemn them because of your own perception of them. Because that's I think I talked about that recently, about the sort of person who, if they don't explicitly know that you like them, especially if you're kind of a stoic person, because that's... A chorus you hear constantly is, especially extroverted people or or insecure people, especially insecure extroverted people, which is a very interesting breed of person, the insecure extrovert. There's a surprising number of them. I don't know how many. I don't. That's not a category on the census. Although that's the next step, right? The next step is people are going to be writing like, you know, it's like. Uh, when the census comes around and asks you, like, your race, ethnicity, age, the next thing is going to be they're going to ask you if you're, like, an INTJ or whatever. Be like, what's your Myers-Briggs? Everybody's got to have a Myers-Briggs. When you get a when you get a driver's license in America in 2030, you got to list your Myers-Briggs. Oh, what's your Myers-Briggs? What's your Myers-Briggs? Um... <laughs> But, uh, you know, like a lot of people go through life, though, and especially I've noticed insecure extroverts, where if you're stoic or you don't like, you don't powder someone's face, you don't go out of your way when you first meet them to be like, I'm a dog and I like you and I'm letting you know, you know, they might assume you don't like them. And so they build this phantom in their head, if you're even important enough to them. Because that's another phantom. I mean, phantoms within phantoms. But that's another phantom is imagining that people are thinking about you and wh- and then in turn what you think about them. But a lot of people do do that. A lot of us go through life thinking, what does this person think about me? And what do they think I think about them? And if there isn't some sort of explicit, hey... You're my friend. You know, if, if you don't communicate that explicitly, people can easily build these phantoms in your head. And, like, I used to hear that a lot when I was younger. I would, something would break the ice and someone would say, like, I thought you hated me. I thought you hated me. And I'm like, I didn't hate you at all. Like, like I mean, we didn't have a reason to, you know, there, there was no reason to, like, to powder each other's faces, I guess, but it's like, no, you know, so it's just, you know, a a difference in temperament can easily make someone build these phantoms in their mind. And I've done it myself. 
that's a hundred percent happened to me where I've imagined, Oh, that person, they're not too enthusiastic about me. And you find out that it really all, it just, it was just this sort of like cold war or it was like neither person had any issue with the other person. In fact, they might've actually liked you and you liked them, but it was just because nobody was willing to like break that tension and just be like, Hey, and I mean, people experience that with dating a lot in romance. That's especially true where it's, it's, it's way more of this, game you know where you don't want to show your cards so that can easily lead to all kinds of impressions and I don't even know that I I don't know that I even want to get into like romantic phantoms because that's a whole other beast I mean it's not too different from anything else I'm talking about here but like a guy who's imagining what women think of him and but again it comes from insecurity But you can be a secure person who thinks of phantoms because that's your brain supplying you with counterpoint that should strengthen or hurt your argument. Like, if you're imagining a point somebody could potentially make that truly challenges something you have in your head, that should strengthen your argument or help you go, you know what, maybe, I, maybe they have a point. Maybe they actually have a very strong point that my idea sucks and I should let go of it. Or revisit it later. Not At the very least, not invest in it. But it could also strengthen your point. Like you can imagine somebody making a very strong point against you, a counterpoint. And then that can actually help you go, well, no, actually, I do. I have a response to that. Or that doesn't actually hurt my point. But you think about like something that's changed about people is, you know, People are interacting with strangers on a much larger scale than they ever did before. And even though that's always been the case, like as long as people have been online, they've been interacting and fighting with strangers. But when it was more decentralized, like when people were fighting on forums, it was you know far more compartmentalized. Like it likely wasn't, even if it was somebody who was a stranger to you or if they were anonymous... It was still somebody who was looking in the same compartment as you. It was still somebody in this very, you know, this very distinct compartment. It wasn't this world we're in now where you can post something publicly on social media or, and tons of strangers might potentially see it and respond. And that's where a lot of hostility exists. That's where you see people going, you're a freaking asshole. Oh my God, you're an asshole. People will just say that right away. Because when they see that, like when somebody sees a stranger say something online, on Twitter, on Facebook, and they respond with an insult or they attack it, that might as well be a phantom to them. Even if there's a face, even if there is a human face, it is just this, this kind of... Because I've said before that, you know, social media, or it kind of mirrors the collective unconscious. You know, it... it it kind of is a form of subconscious a simulation of it. You know, it, it is a human-created simulation. And uh, as a result, you have a tendency to, to treat strangers on these platforms as if they are your mental phantoms. And like I was saying, how like a, a lot of people, their, their relationship with their internal phantoms 
is often not very sophisticated. It's often just trading insults and like, well, here's what I would say if you insulted me about that. And here's what I would point out in that. And then I would punch you in the face. And you can see that the way that people interact with strangers online is often along those lines where it's not about making a solid counterpoint. It's about insulting that person and them insulting you. And it, they treat these people like phantoms because there really isn't anything gluing them together as humans. It, it is a thought that is just appearing. Even if it's appearing on a screen, it is still just this thought that is now entering your brain when you read it. And uh, that's something I have very limited experience with. Like I mentioned, you know, I did an episode about forums the other day. And I was talking about like how I was a bastard and everybody else was too. You know, we just, there was a meanness, but it was, it was a hum, it, was, it was all based in humor, but there was a meanness to it. And, uh, you know, and, and a lot of that is just boredom. You know, when you're bored, you have a tendency to like maybe uh, get a little evil streak in you. But it was still, it was very decentralized. Again, it was, you know, if you were mean on a forum, it was very decentralized. And if you got a response, it was from just the people who read or participate in that forum. It was a very limited audience. And therefore, it's not just some stranger coming out of the void to insult you. It's somebody who has something in common with you because they've made their way to this strange compartment over here. But now that we've reached a point where, like, people are just fighting with strangers all the time. People who you otherwise would just see at work or out at the grocery store and just think, like, that's just a normal person, there's a not small chance that they could engage in just fights with strangers all the time online. They might very well just... They could, they could do it anonymously. They could do it under their own name because, I mean, it's, it, it's kind of mind-blowing just uh, as I mentioned again and again, but it, it still kind of blows my mind that anonymity really played very little role in people's meanness online. Like that theory that people used to have that, oh, you're only saying that because you're anonymous. Like that theory has really been rocked. It's really been, I mean, disproven in my opinion. Because we see where even people under their own names are willing to say horrible things. And most people don't get in, in any trouble for it. Partially because it's just like entering the void. You know, it's just, it's getting thrown out into the void. But, you know, even though I had these early experiences of, like, fighting with people online and that kind of thing, it's something I haven't experienced much in this new world. Like, yeah, I've gone back and forth with people before about things we disagree about, but it's almost always somebody I know. And so the world of, like, saying something online on a public platform where strangers interact with each other and, like, people talk about, like, quote-unquote pile-ons. And you can see that, like, if you look at, like, a famous person's Twitter account. Like, if you look at, like, Donald Trump Jr., he's a good example. Trump, excuse me. I know you might not know who that is. I meant, what I meant to say is Donald Trumpsfeld Jr. Um, but if you look at, like, someone like that, it's very interesting. Because, like, if that guy posts something on Twitter and you look at the comments, it is... It's all just immediately just people attacking him and saying, like, oh, well, what does daddy think of that? 
oh, is that what you were thinking when you were doing this, uh, you and daddy? It's, it's weird. Like, I, I looked at that a while back. Like, I happened to see something online Donald Trumpsfeld Jr. posted, and I just, I just, just wanted to see. And, and yeah, sure enough, it's like it was just this flood. It was like what they call a pile-on. And for some people, that's just a reality of being online. Famous people. It doesn't matter, even matter who they are. You know, it just chances are there's somebody out there who wants to haunt them. Because the thing is, when you do that, like, when you are that person who, like, sees a famous person post something online, or anybody, but a famous person is the example here, and you decide to respond with something nasty, whether it's an actual point or just an insult, you might as well be a phantom in that moment. And you will be perceived as a phantom by the target that you are attacking, and other people who see it will perceive you as a phantom. Because you are engaging in phantom-like behavior. But, you know, I have had like maybe one or two experiences with that where I do say something online that's in public and you get this flood of mean responses and it's very hard not to react to that. And like, like I said, I have very little experience with that. But you do get this flood of mean responses and it's a very strange phenomenon because it's like, oh... You know, these people, like, I'm a phantom to them, and they're phantoms to me. And because of that, it's just, there There are no rules. There's no tact. You know, it's just full on. You say whatever you want to say, and, you know, it's just, and, you know, I also, I mentioned that, like, I, the only the only online video game I ever played was one time I got online to play Age of Empires 2 way back when, like, early on. You know, when, when online gaming was still, maybe not new, but this would have been like probably early 2000s, I was just like, huh, you can play this game online, I'm going to try that out, because I like I liked that game, Age of Empires 2. And, uh, you know, I, I hated it. I it didn't have any bad experience, like nobody, it's, it wasn't... It wasn't like the way people describe online games in recent years where it's everybody just ruthlessly insulting each other. You know, all of the jokes, people, the tired jokes about people like insulting their mothers and stuff. You know, it wasn't anything like that. But I I had a bad taste in my mouth, though, because like playing like that's a that's a great game. It's a great strategy game. But like playing it online that one time, it was like everybody was just focused on like exploiting the mechanics of the game. Like nobody was interested in an actual they weren't interested in, like, the drama of a strategy game. They were interested in just exploiting the mechanics of the game. And, like, what little I've seen of the online gaming industry, like these guys who make a living doing that, is that it's largely based around just kind of exploiting the mechanics. It's like, here's what you can do to be as efficient and successful as possible at winning in this game. But it doesn't really care about any sense of story and that, you know, that's even something that I remember with action figures growing up. Like, my childhood best friend, like, one of the reasons why I think we were such good friends at an early age is because, like, we would play with action figures, and for us, it was about the story. Like, thinking about my taste in action figures as a kid, I couldn't have cared less about, like, the rocket-firing missile. Like, if a guy had some sort of mechanical function where it's like, oh, you load the missile in his rocket launcher, and you hit, you, you pull this, and it launches the rocket like an inch... Oh my God, that's that's amazing. I actually I always saw that as a detriment. It always got in the way of what I wanted to do with action figures because it's like, do I do I really want like a lever on this guy's back? 
It looks stupid. And like beyond the fact that like, oh, cool, you'd try it out. Like even I like if I got an, an action figure with a rocket launcher that fires a missile, I'm going to try it out just because it's a function of this toy that I got. But in terms of actually like caring, it was always kind of it kind of got in the way of action figures, if anything. And my childhood best friend and I, like, I think one of the reasons why we were such close friends very early on is because we both like to map out a story. Like, we would play with action figures and we would be like, okay, we're going to establish a setting and we're going to, like, stage these scenes and kind of act out this story. And other kids, though, you'd invite other kids over or go to another kid's house and he'd have action figures but he just wants to throw them around and he's really into the rocket launcher. And it's just, those kids weren't fun to play with. Cause you'd be like, let's be serious. Let's actually like act out a storyline and improvise. Let's have like the guys go on a mission. Let's have something they're doing. But some kids just aren't imaginative. The mechanics are what they're interested in. Like you can like make the guy do this, you know, there's that sort of thing. And that never worked out. That was always, it always sucked. So having a friend who liked to act all that out, who used his imagination like I did to have these actual storylines, this sense of drama, it's kind of the same thing to me as that one experience I had with Age of Empires Online, where it was just like, oh yeah, these people don't have a sense of story or drama. Not that I was looking to, not like I was looking in this game to be like, typing out a story but just what I mean is like the way that you control your army just the way you move like I don't know just just doing it with a a certain amount of story to it I guess I don't know drama maybe I don't know not just doing everything as quickly as possible um, but you know thinking about the, what got me on this tangent is just thinking about the way that you know, online gaming, like you think about playing video games with your friends, like a multiplayer game growing up. And yeah, you might talk a little bit of shit. You might, somebody might get mad. You know, somebody might lose it if you just keep killing them. That would happen. But it's still, you're with your friends. And even if you trade, you know, even if you're like shooting each other in a video game, in a multiplayer game, and, you know, talking a little bit of shit, it's all in good fun and you kind of understand it. And from what I gather, like online gaming, as it as it got bigger and bigger, and now it's everything. You know, you're you're doing the same thing. You're playing a game with other people, but you don't know them, and there's a much higher chance of getting seriously upset. Like that person might as well be a phantom. That person might as well be somebody who's simply haunting you. And it's what's interesting to me is like some of the first popular online videos that I remember were people losing it during online video games. Like, the, like very early on on YouTube, I remember a lot of the videos, a lot of like the, what went viral. And I, and I didn't pay attention. Like I wasn't, I, I wasn't part of any of these like nerd circles. Like I wasn't even paying attention to like online gaming or any of anything like that yet these things became so well known that even I came across them during those early years of YouTube and online video where like even I came across like countless videos that were just all about somebody like basically having a tantrum on the microphone during an online video game. And so it's interesting that that played such a vital role in uh, the development of, you know, popular 
video services online, just the idea that like somebody losing their cool, because when that would happen in reality growing up, like where you'd be playing video games with a bunch of kids and some kid would just lose it. It was always funny. Be like, oh, you lost your cool. That's that's a source of that's fun. It's funny. So it's not surprising to me that that would play out with online gaming as it became more popular. Like, look at this guy losing it. But I think it's just that sort of interaction with strangers makes that more likely. Because those phantoms that exist in your head, they now are a little more real. Because it's somebody out there. somewhere. They could be anywhere in the world, which is amazing. But it's, there's somebody out there who is saying something to you that is mean or insulting. Or even if they're trying to argue with you in good faith. I mean, we have a lot of trouble with that. Like, we, we have a lot of trouble with somebody even arguing with us in good faith. Because we turn them into a phantom where even if they're making a valid point, they're coming from a belief system or a, a, a larger point of view that I can stereotype. And, I mean, it, it's, you know, let's, let's go back to the, I promise not to talk about the VAC today. But just as an example, like me coming from the place of, I got the vac. I got the two-shot vac. But because I hold the view that people shouldn't be forced to get it, somebody could easily create a phantom out of me if they were just to hear the last part. Like if they were just to hear that, oh, he doesn't think people should be forced to get the vac. They would build a phantom where I'm an anti-vacker. Where I'm an anti-masker. Where I'm a, I'm a this. Oh, I must have, uh, I must have participated. Oh, you, so you're an anti-vacker, huh? Did you go to the January 6th riot too? Like someone creates this phantom. And there's somebody who, that describes them. There, there, is, there is somebody who is against the vac, who's against the mask, who went to the January 6th riot, you know. But if you just make one point, that somebody could potentially link to that, they create this illusion, this phantom in their mind that that is you. And it's a universal human trait. doesn't matter what it is. We have a tendency to do that. I mean, it's one of the reasons for stereotypes in general. You know, in stereotypes, they have their function too. You know, which is one of the problems with discussions of stereotype is just that there's a certain argument that says, like, we should not stereotype anybody. Well, we can't not do it. If you get rid of all stereotypes, stereotypes will recreate themselves. We will see patterns. Because what is a stereotype? It's a pattern. But we take that too far, and we turn those into caricatures. We turn those into phantoms. We start to associate, like, any person from this country is this way. Any person from this culture, any person of this ethnicity is this way. Anybody who has this belief is this way. So we turn those things into phantoms. It's, it's again, an, an example of how something can have a function. Or at least, even if it doesn't have a function, although I think stereotypes absolutely do, but, you know, something can have a function, or, or sorry, something doesn't even necessarily need a function if it's just an inevitability, that's another side of it, too. Like I said about stereotypes, I believe stereotypes are inevitable. I don't see how you can not come up with them. I don't see how society can avoid developing them. Because we see patterns, 
we recognize patterns, but then we limit people to that too. You know, we limit people to those stereotypes, which is the source of a lot of the issues with stereotypes, is using that to contain people's identities rather than just to use them to understand each other and and that goes for people that aren't good for you you know you know what i mean where it's like you can look at a certain stereotype of a person and say you know that's that general type of person is someone i don't want much to do with based on the patterns i see which is why you know and it could be anything it's not necessarily race you know we tend to think that's the funny thing is that, you know stereotypes have been so heavily associated with race and other obvious identifiers that we tend to think of that word almost exclusively in those terms like racial like when we hear stereotype we automatically think it refers to racial stereotype but it could be anything it could be the person who, who you know somebody assumes that because someone is into nerdy things they must be good at academia I mean, if you've ever worked on a group project, I still think about this group project. I still think about it. No, I almost never think about it, but I just, I remember that phantom. You still think about that? But uh, I remember this group project I had to do in college, and one of the guys in our group was really nerdy. He was like this kind of, his humor, his interests, he, he was a nerd. I, don't, I, don't, I doubt this guy would have even argued that point. But, like, the group kind of assumed that this guy, it was a science class, so the group kind of assumed that this guy was going to be our ticket. Like, oh, we got the nerd in our group. It turned out he was really not into, he really couldn't care less about academia. He was just going through the motions. He wasn't a good student, necessarily. He didn't give us any edge. But people were like, oh, we have the nerd in our group, in our science group. He's going to make this project easy. He did very little. He just kind of made silly jokes he really did very little on the project but people we went into it I don't know that you know maybe I did as well but just the group as a whole like the consensus was kind of like oh wow like aren't you going to help with this like aren't you the guy aren't you our guy and it turned out he wasn't and uh, you know but we, you, you go through life too though where it's like if somebody has had issues with jocks in their life or if they've seen the hundreds and hundreds of movies and TV shows that reinforce the idea that jocks are bullies and they now see the reality that way like if they meet somebody who appears to be a jock they might very well be like well I don't want anything to do with him because when he gets the opportunity he's going to give me a swirly even though how many kids have actually been given a swirly, you know? But we know that, oh, I saw a movie where the football players gave the nerd a swirly. But yeah, that, that sort of, uh, you know, stereotypes are phantoms. And just like the phantoms in your head often have a basis in reality. Like you're thinking about a real type of person and the sorts of things they might do and say. A stereotype is basically that, too. It's a phantom. It has a basis in reality. But just like a phantom, you can't be attached to it. You can't let that become your reality, although it often does. Um, you know, I was thinking, though, about like just that voice in your head, just that simple phenomenon, because it's kind of like the bicameral mind 
it brings that to mind. Like the idea, I'm not really feeling up to it, breaking down what the bicameral mind is, but I know it's come up in the last couple of years on this show, which is like the idea that at a certain point in human evolution, there was a separation between the voice in our head and us. And some have theorized that that's where the idea of God comes from, that it used to feel like something was commanding you far more than it does today, where we tend to think of the thoughts in our head as, as ours and that we are making decisions through our own free will. And so the, the idea of the bicameral mind is similar to the idea of like a voice in your head who's telling you to do things. Many of them things you should do probably. But but still, it's like and, and it's been associated with schizophrenia, you know, just, and, and it's, it's one of those ideas that isn't proven and people question it. But I, I, if nothing, like why even brand it pseudoscience? You know, I, I guess I don't understand the need to condemn ideas when we can just entertain them as an interesting possibility. And even if that isn't absolutely what even if that isn't the absolute truth, like even if the bicameral mind is just a theory that has been discredited that could lead us somewhere else you know that that could easily lead us somewhere else that we need to go but anyway you know that bicameral mind kind of makes me think of this where it's like the idea of a voice in your head saying something commanding you but in this case these phantoms they're often people trying to criticize us they're often people trying to attack us I mean I think it's the other side of the coin though from like having a certain ideal like the sort of person who like fantasizes about their ideal woman. Oh man, she would have she would have blonde hair, double DDs, and she'd think I'm cool. You know, we we kind of we create f- I, phantoms based on our own ideals as well. Although I don't really I don't I don't really have much experience in that, so I can't comment on it. And. Uh, that can be bad too, though. I mean, it, it can be good to have, I mean, it's like positive visualization too. It's kind of like a form of that where it's like you imagine this ideal and because you're imagining that ideal, you're more likely to pursue that ideal. You know, so I don't think that's necessarily wrong either, but you can see where people get caught up in fantasy worlds where they're just imagining this ideal world. They're imagining ideal people who don't exist and that can kind of set you up for frustration. Like the sort of kid who grows up thinking, like, eventually, eventually, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna live in this fantasy world with a a, a blonde with double DDs hanging on my arm. Eventually, it's gonna happen. You know, you can set yourself up for failure and delude yourself by thinking that way. And so, in that way, it is like that sort of phantom you're creating. But I don't know, like, like the idea, like I do wonder if there's a certain sort of person where they. They imagine themselves saying or doing something. I think they do. No, people do do this, where they imagine themselves saying or doing something, and then they imagine being applauded. They imagine people celebrating it. They imagine positive reinforcement. So there are those positive phantoms, too, where it's like, because you see this, too. Like, like, there's something that people have pointed out online, where, like, sometimes someone will share something online, and it just, it just seems like BS, like, I know the joke surrounding it would be, like, somebody does something bold, and then everybody in the classroom claps. There's a lot of jokes about that I've seen over the years, about the idea of, like, someone sharing a story online, and it always ends up with, like, somebody saying, like, 
you're the coolest person to ever exist. And then the audience, then everybody in the classroom claps because you took a stand or did something cool. You see that. So that's, that's, I think that is the same thing I'm talking about where instead of a, but instead of imagining people attacking you, instead of imagining this sort of like persecution complex, instead of imagining people arguing or trying to disprove you. Instead, you imagine this sort of celebration of you, this celebration of what you theoretically did in this mental scenario. You know, so you see that as well. I don't relate to that. I don't, I don't think that I've ever personally done much of that. I'm just, I'm trying to think of like any time in my life where I've like imagined a scenario where... Yeah, well, because this is there were these like Republican mom chain letters that were going around for a while. I'm trying to think of what it was. It was like Jack the Marine. Todd, I think it was Todd, which is even better. It was like Todd the Marine. Yeah, like Todd the Marine. And these these stories can get very complex. It's like Todd the Marine through the GI Bill went back to college after serving heroically in Iraq. Iraq. And the professor was a, a beady-eyed, hunchbacked communist. And he said, America sucks. And it's always been a bad country. And we should become communist because capitalism is bad. And, and we kill people in the Middle East. Blah, blah, blah. And then Todd the Marine got up in front of the class and he said... I fought for your freedom and punched the professor in the face and everybody in the classroom clapped. You know, that was a real scenario that was making its rounds. It was like this, this Republican mom chain letter. And while that wasn't the person themselves, it was like they were imagining the scenario where someone basically did what they wanted. Like in that scenario, like, like look that up. I, I'm pretty sure I have it right. Like look up Todd the Marine if you haven't heard of this because it was many years ago now. But it was this, this kind of chain letter that was making its rounds. And it was totally fabricated. It was totally made up. But basically someone made up a story about what they would like to do. Like whoever wrote that story they wanted to go punch a communist professor in the face. But that communist professor doesn't even exist. Like, yeah, there are communist professors. But like that communist professor in that story, he's just a phantom too. And so they've created this phantom hero, this phantom classroom, this phantom professor. And the, the ex-Marine punches the professor, the phantom audience claps. And it's basically a fantasy of what that person would want to do. And so people create those sorts of scenarios in their brain as well. I don't know what the value of that is. I really don't know beyond just being fan. I mean, that's fan fiction. That's like neocon Republican fan fiction. Like imagining this, like sharing these stories. And there were a bunch of them too. It wasn't just one story like different variations of the same story made their rounds. And, uh, but it was a form of fan fiction. And that's what all this stuff kind of is. It becomes this sort of fiction in your brain. But I don't know what the value necessarily is. Like I, I completely understand the value of phantoms arguing with you in your brain because those potentially it's good to be challenged your point becomes stronger like if your point doesn't become stronger when it's challenged it's not a good point 
you know, and, and even if that point legitimately challenges it, it's not just about like pr disproving challenges to your idea. It's also weathering challenges like somebody might in an arg like this is something that's important. If somebody makes an argument against you or something you said, it very well might be a good point that you can't beat. Like, you know what? I can't actually argue against that. I mean, let's go with police brutality. Like police brutality is real, real. But is that a sufficient argument? against having police at all like is the fact that the police system is ex is very imperfect you have bad people who are police officers and not even just bad people but you have people who are human who make mistakes you know is that an argument against the entire system of of police the idea of a society needing police because that was one of the arguments that was being made heavily last year by even fairly moderate people, like the whole defund the police thing, where it was like, because there is police brutality, because there is police corruption, we need to completely disband the police. And maybe something does become so inherently corrupt that you do just have to get rid of it. But the question is, is occasional police brutality worth or, or rather, is it worth getting rid of the, a police force because of occasional police brutality? Are the repercussions to getting rid of a police force worth making that kind of drastic decision? I would say no. My personal opinion is no. And I'm no, I'm no cop fanboy. Because you run the risk on the opposite side of being like, well, because these people are, are stereotyping and generalizing all police, I'm going to double down on the side of police and act like there's no police brutality. Because that's what some of these cop, like, thin blue line fanboys do. And they are fanboys. They kind of, a, they have a tendency to be like, well, because these people are wrong about needing to get rid of police entirely, or they, they're wrong about some point they're making... I have to completely rule out the reality of police brutality. You know, there's people who operate that way, but it's like, oops, that was my dryer. Oh my God, there was a noise. The phantoms are just, that, that was the phantom alarm. The phantoms are going to come out and be like, oh my God, they had a noise. Oh, did this guy, he does a podcast and he, uh, it wasn't very professional because there was a dryer in the background and then the dryer made a bzzz. That phantom. It was funny is my, my mixer has a phantom button. I just looked down and saw it. I totally forgot about that. I don't even know what it does. It's just my mixer says phantom and there's a button. So even my mixer has, has its own phantom. <laughs> my audio mixer. I should look up what that does. Maybe if I press the phantom button, just a phantom starts talking. A phantom starts actually verbalizing itself. That's all I need. All I need is my phantoms to actually show up. Like I had a couple of those audio hallucinations earlier this year. I don't know what the cause was, but I mentioned those on an episode. Like I heard an alarm when I was meditating. And I mean, that could have been just the meditative state, you know, because you, you can get very deep and weird things can happen, rare as they are. But then I also, there was one morning where I was like half awake in my bed and I heard somebody, it was actually the voice of a friend of mine, say my name 
it sounded out loud. And, you know, because I was in a state of half sleep, it, it could have been some, I could have been in some like uh, purgatory between dreamland and reality. And I heard somebody say my name in my dream, but it was just so strange is that it really sounded like somebody was in my house saying my name. But anyway, I haven't had any audio hallucinations really ever in my life except for that. Just when I was on a huge amount of marijuana edibles in California and I was trying to sleep but couldn't and I heard a like a British police siren and I said to myself, like, whoa, I didn't realize California police sirens sounded like that. And then I realized that I totally hallucinated it. But that was a huge amount of edibles after a 13-hour drive. So I think that explained it. But anyway, audio hallucinations, phantoms. I don't know. I, th- I think you can look at them as functional. You can look at phantoms as functional if you don't let them get out of hand. Because they should strengthen your argument. And if they don't, well, you know your argument isn't very good. But it's amazing like how quickly they jump in. It's amazing like how quickly, at least my brain, like quickly, like this show is a great example where like I'll say something and the accents play a huge role in that. Not to get too meta about my own show, not to get into just sh- internal show talk here. But it is something that plays out on this show where like I will say something on this show and sometimes it might even completely derail my train of thought because it's like I am I say something and then I immediately think about what somebody might say in response, whether it's an emotional response or whether it's a tactical response, whether it's a good point or a bad point. I have that tendency to go, oh, so you think blah, blah, blah. Oh, see what you're saying is. What you say, you know, my brain just naturally goes there. And when you do a monologue like this, it comes out. But it's very funny to me. It's very funny to imagine these hypothetical people. And sometimes it is based on someone you know. And, you know, there's a famous comedian who does this, uh, Jim Gaffigan, where as far as I know, his entire comedy is based in this, where he'll say something and then he does this sort of church lady voice. And that's one of his his main draws, as far as I can tell, is that he'll say something and then he does this sort of church lady voice who's like pushing back on him or judging him. And I, I saw him talk about that because I related to it. You know, I'm not like I'm not a big stand up comedy fan. He's one of the most I think one of the most famous comedians these days or was a few years ago. But when I saw him just, you know, I saw him in passing one time. And I immediately related. Immediately I knew exactly what he was doing. Like I, And I think most of his audience does. I think we all do, because I think we all entertain these same phantoms. But I realized immediately, and this was before I ever thought of these as phantoms, I heard Jim Gaffigan and I was like, oh, he, yeah, he, he's, his humor is based on bringing his phantoms to the stage where he says something and then he, he does this kind of church lady voice of somebody who's outraged. Because a lot of it is that outraged person. Because that's funny. Someone who's outraged is funny. Um, and I was just like, well, I, under- I relate heavily to what he's doing. Even though my, fan- my phantoms are different, okay? They're not that different, but they're different. Like, even though his phantoms aren't my phantoms, <laughs> uh, it-, it was still something I immediately recognized... I believe I was already doing this show and everything at that time. 
And, uh, but, it, but it, yeah, it was something I was like, oh, I do that. Even just regardless of this show, like just, it's something I've always done in my own head and I've, I've kind of been aware of it, but you become especially aware of it. You know, if you are able to clear your mind, because the thing is, if you can't ever clear your mind, those phantoms will be in a feedback loop. And when, when those phantoms are in a feedback loop, they create almost a real person in your mind. They create a, a stereotype of somebody in your mind. And you might very well take that with you out into the world. And if, if you do have a way of clearing your mind, if you're a well-balanced person, if you meditate, if you just have some way of clearing your mind, you, know, you stop that feedback loop. You still have the phantoms. The phantoms still come, but they don't build into a, a crescendo. They don't build into a crescendo. Because that's what ends up happening when your mind does go into a feedback loop is that it builds. Those phantoms build and it they build into a, a Phil Spector wall of noise in your brain. And I do believe that's what's going on with a lot of people who have doubled down on their dogmatism, who go out into the world and the second they hear somebody say, hey, you know, maybe we shouldn't force people to get the vaccine, they immediately build a an illusion out of you. Not that I'm out there saying that publicly or anything, but I'm just saying I have seen that take place. I have heard of that taking place where like the phantoms in people's mind are so thick, they're thick as thieves, that... That impacts the way they interact with the world. That impacts everything going on in their life. And it, it makes their life and other people's lives very difficult. Because there's very little differentiation. <laughs> there's very little differentiation between those phantoms and uh, real people they interact with, especially if they're doing this online. Because I don't want to lose that thought. Like in the same way that online gaming, as it became more and more, less and less based on playing with your friends because someone correct if there's any nerds out there if there's any nerds out there correct me if i'm wrong but here i am that's that's imagining nerd phantoms now but if there's any nerd phantoms out there correct me if i'm wrong but my understanding is that even early online gaming was with people you knew like you had to connect a- along the same uh network or something like it was something that, like you couldn't just get onto an online server and play with anybody and everybody. It had to be somebody that you knew in some capacity. My understand that's my understanding. I could be wrong. But when that earlier form of like playing a, a multiplayer console game with your friends and then playing on an LAN later on, a LAN, and then playing with total strangers later on on like Warcraft and all these other games that people play online with total strangers, you can see where like the negativity and the, you can see where it just becomes more unhinged. And that's what we've seen too from social media where like as people have interacted more with strangers, it's like everything has become more unhinged. Because there really is little distinction between somebody you're talking to online and the phantoms in your brain. And they blend together. And they in turn see you as a phantom. 
And honestly, like a lot of people act like phantoms. A lot of people aren't really expressing themselves honestly. They're not necessarily expressing themselves sincerely. They, they kind of want to engage in this phantom game because you do have to enter it. You know, you do kind of have to enter the arena in that regard. And yeah, there are situations where the phantoms really come for you, where real people really come for you. But uh, overall, though, it's like most of this never happens. That's the big thing about all this. I don't want to lose sight of that either in all of this, is that most of the scenarios you play through in your head never actually end up happening. Like you never, like you're, you're in the shower and you're imagining going into work tomorrow and confronting that your boss about something they did. Most of the time you never actually do that. That situation never actually plays out. And maybe it doesn't need to if you entertain it in your head. You know, maybe that is that healthy side of this where you don't actually need to do it because you've already explored it mentally. And the risk isn't worth it. Like the risk for most people, the risk of confronting their boss simply isn't worth it. The imbalance of power, like trying to cross that, like trying, you you can't balance that. There are so many situations in life where you can't balance it out. But, you know, just the, the way that we talk to each other too, though, is informed by this. Like you're way more likely to call somebody a name. You're way more likely to use ad hominem if you're arguing with a phantom and uh, I mean, going into language could turn this into a two hour episode that I don't want to do right now, but just the language that people use, like you're more likely to call a phantom a name. You're a bitch. Oh, you shut up. You You know, you're more likely to just shut somebody down too. But it is useful to let your phantoms make points. <laughs> it is useful to like, when you think a thought, to imagine what somebody might say about it. How would you defend that thought? You know, would that thought weather that? Like, let's say somebody makes a point and you can just knock it down. You can go, okay, I have a response to that. But it goes back to that idea of weathering counterpoint too because because like with the police brutality thing i was saying there is no real way to challenge that counterpoint like if you say if you made the point we need a police force as a civilization we need a police force somebody would respond and they would say yeah but look at all the corruption look at all the brutality And I don't think an honest person could shut that point down. Like, you can't negate that point completely. Like, you can't... That's not a lie. Somebody who says, what about corruption and police brutality? That's not a lie that you can disprove. It's a fact. It's a fact. But your point can still weather it. Like, even though you can't shut that idea down, even though if you're an honest person, you can't negate the idea that there are corrupt and violent police officers. Like, you can't negate that. But the greater point of believing we need a police force can weather that storm. Because you can say, well, we're still better off with a police force, in my opinion. So, you know, some of this is like weathering 
a counterpoint, not just shutting it down, but just being able to do that, being able to see those thoughts that way. Because you get defensive in your own mind. Not only are these imaginative scenarios playing out in your mind, but you can actually get defensive. Yet that's an opportunity to not be defensive. Because this is a scenario that is, it might be rooted in something real. It might be something that could very well potentially happen. But the fact that it's playing out in your own mind means you can do anything with it. It means you have a full range of motion. You can think about it from many different perspectives, many different vantage points. And that's extremely useful. And that's why some people are just amazing lawyers. Like, I am fascinated by the legal system and the way that lawyers... Because, I mean, you have to think about a lawyer, and it's a position that's not based on right or wrong. It's based on finding the right angle. And I I just find that endlessly fascinating. Like, I don't study law or anything, but just, you know, doing the sort of research I have into crime and the mafia, I'm always fascinated by the angles that a good lawyer takes. And I think you can do that in your own brain. Like if you think about, because I think that's what lawyers do. I mean, I think lawyers by their very nature make very good use of phantoms. Like they can imagine what somebody might say so they know what they're going to say in response. And they can channel that professionally. But it's something that you can do personally. Because so much of the conflict in your personal life revolves around people who don't agree with what you with, with what you agree with. People, it's just it's a difference. You know, so much of our struggle in life is just our social struggle in particular is just people who think differently than us or who have a point about something that is different than you know than us. And so I think like entertaining these phantoms. Not getting sucked into some like hypothetical scenario where you, you, oh, I punked him. I punked that phantom. Not trying to punk the phantoms in your mind, but actually entertain that. And like, and just the fact that you, your body even, or that your mind even does that. Just appreciating that your mind even does that. The fact that you can think a thought or say something. And there's very little difference between this show and thinking for me, which I think is why the phantoms come out in full force whenever I do this. It's because... Thinking a thought or making a statement, you know, the fact that there will, there is a phantom that can immediately emerge and go, yeah, but what about this? What about that? And the weird ones for me, like the, we- <laughs> the weirdest phantoms of all for me are the ones that accuse me of lying. <laughs> I think because, you know, I mean, everybody wants the truth. Everybody, everybody believes that they are upholding the truth. Everybody who's not coming from a fundamentally corrupt place believes that they are upholding the truth. And as a result, like we tend to imagine phantoms accusing us of lying. That didn't really happen. Like I think about that constantly. Like because because I because this show is performative. But it's also an attempt to be very honest about what I think. 
and who I am and what I've experienced. It, um, there's just this natural tendency in me to be like, well, I'm imagining that person who hears this and goes, he's a fraud. He lied about that's not how it really happened. He made that up. You don't actually believe that. You know, so that's an interesting one for me, though. The, the phantom that accuses you of lying. The phantom that accuses you of dishonesty. I mean, it is the same thing as that argument. You know, cause, but it's an argument about you. But that's a very helpful one, too. The phantom that accuses you of lying might be the most helpful one of all. Because it does make you look back at yourself. It makes you look at yourself under a very harsh light and say, like, am I lying? Am I exaggerating? Am I, am I doing something that is not consistent with what I actually experienced or what I actually think? And when you see somebody apologize, because you know, that's a, I haven't really gone into that much and I'm not going to go into it here. I just want to mention it. But like there's been an argument and it's, it's been a very consistent one, and I haven't seen much evidence against it. As someone who pays attention to the culture war, I haven't seen much evidence against this, and it's the idea that don't apologize. If these phantoms are accusing you of something, if you've been accused of saying or doing the wrong thing, it's one thing if it's criminal. Like, Because, I mean, my stance on apologies is that like, I have no issue apologizing. But I, I want to, I, I do it when I actually mean it. And I do it when it actually pertained to somebody. Like if I did something to somebody, I want to apologize for that. I want to reconcile that. Like if that person matters to me, I want to reconcile that. But that's personal. But we've gotten to this point where we are apologizing to phantoms. Like when someone gets canceled... Like, unless they're being coerced into apologizing by, like, their employer. I just, I don't see why you would apologize to people that you personally didn't hurt. But that's been the whole, that's been one of the greatest tools of manipulation is the idea of harm and damage done simply by thinking thoughts and saying words but again, like that kind of it's it kind of reminds me of the police argument because it's like words and uh, thoughts. I mean, less. I mean, words are thoughts, so let's just stick with words. But words can hurt people. They can influence people to do bad things. They can influence a climate in which bad things might be happening to somebody. For example, like let's say we're in. We're in Germany in 1941. And I mean, the extent to which the German people knew about the Holocaust is very questionable. The average German citizen may not have known, while they, they received the propaganda, they may not have known what was actually happening. But that person, you know, if that person says like, yeah, let's get, let's get rid of the Jews. Let's get rid of them. That is, that, is a, that is harmful. That is a harmful attitude. Even though that person isn't doing it themselves, like even though that random, I mean, they're a phantom in my mind right now, that random German phantom, random German phantom, it's my new screen name, 
Rand, uh, a guy was messaging me last night called Random German Phantom. I'm really pissed off because I was going to name my band that. This guy got the screen name and now I can't name it that. But anyway, weird. Um, but, uh, that that guy that, that random german phantom uh who who like basically encourages the holocaust while not directly participating in it you can say that that person is doing something harmful even though it's just a thought even though it's just a statement you can say that that's something harmful but what do you do about it you know what do you actually do about that And that person isn't going to be charged with war crimes. They're not actually going to be blamed. You know, there is a general blame that's placed upon the German people during that period. But that individual is unlikely to actually receive any blame for thinking that or saying that. But it gets into such weird territory when people start blatantly manipulating that. And I I don't have an answer. I don't have an answer. And I default to the view that let them say it. Let them say it. I don't. I think you run more risk, in my opinion, by not letting someone say something. I think you make that thought more powerful. You know, it, it's a tr- it's it's not an easy argument to dissect. I don't know that there's an answer. I truly, I've thought about this so much, and I don't know that there's an answer to that. But that's kind of that kind of fits into what I was saying about police brutality, though, where it's like you could say like, oh. So you believe in something close to absolute free speech. What about this? What about that person who says something that encourages... What, what about that person who says something that encourages something bad that is taking place? Or they encourage something that ends up manifesting physically? Like, what do you do about that? That to me is kind of like dealing with police brutality, where it's like, I don't see the existence of police brutality, which I think is an inevitability anytime you have anybody with that kind of power in that kind of position. And that would include citizens governing themselves. Like if we didn't have a police force, well, you're going to have vendettas. It might be even worse. You're going to have people carrying out justice on their own. And there's going to be no real greater system to deal with that. So it's not like it's going to stop violence. It's not like it's going to stop, you know. Um, I mean, it reminds me of, there was an old South Park episode where they the hippies took over and they were and the kids were talking to the hippies and the hippies were like, we, we're creating our own society. We're creating our own society. And we're going to have this guy who, he just bakes bread. That's all he does. He just bakes bread. And the kids are like, it's called a baker. And I want to say they even reference a police officer. They're like, and we're going to have this guy. And like, he makes sure that people don't do blah, blah, blah to each other. He's going to, he's going to make sure people are are protected. And the kids are like, that's a police officer. I don't know that I'm getting this perfectly right. It's been probably over a decade since I saw this. Um, But uh, I thought that was a really great point because it's like, yeah, you end up recreating what already exists. Because the people who were saying, let's disband the police force, like what we saw in Chaz in Seattle last year, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, where they established their own little militia, their own little police force, and we saw that immediately those guys began abusing their privileges. Immediately. 
And so you end up creating the same thing, which is why you shouldn't be too eager to tear things down because you very well might recreate it. And that might actually cause more upheaval and more chaos. It might actually be much worse. And then you end up with the same result. Although I think humanity kind of has to do that over and over again. I haven't found much evidence that humanity can avoid that. But I do believe we end up recreating it. And that's what happens with deconstruction. Like when you deconstruct identity and treat it like it was all manufactured to begin with. And my point about that is always all of these things come from a natural place, but they get reinforced by the society and culture in which they're in. And that reinforcement might be negative reinforcement. They might reinforce the negative aspects of that, but they also might reinforce the positive too at the same time. But when you completely deconstruct everything, it's almost an inevitability that you end up recreating the same thing that already existed. And you may have created way more trouble. Whereas just keeping the existing system and maybe trying to fix it gradually, as difficult as it can be, that might have actually been less trouble. And it it always reminds me of Alan Watts, probably one of my favorite Alan Watts points is when he talks about giving somebody the opportunity to recreate the universe. And he used this example to kind of point out how there's a certain sort of person, and there's many of them, many, many, many of them, who go through life and they think, like, the world sucks. If I had it my way, and it might just be their own personal world. It's that ideal it's like, well, if I had it my way, I'd have a beautiful girlfriend. It's, it's a version of that, but it's like, if I had it my way, this city would be run like this. If I had it my way, this country would be run like this. If I had it my way, the world would be like this. If I, and what you end up working toward is, if I had it my way, the universe would work this way. But Alan Watts pointed out, like, if you gave that person the opportunity to recreate the universe, they would inevitably end up creating the universe we already have. It's almost impossible not to do that because it's our entire frame of reference. And so you'd effectively be rearranging the furniture and saying, look, I changed the universe. You know, because you even think about some people's fantastic ideas, truly by its definition, fantastic where people will have this idea that like, oh, well, I'm, I'm creating this totally new imaginative world. There's dragons. The fact that somebody could imagine, you know, a world in which supernatural creatures exist proves that we wouldn't just recreate the same universe if given the opportunity. Well, what is a dragon? <laughs> what is a dragon? Oh, it's a lizard or a dinosaur something we already know exists. Oh, but it has wings. It has wings like those other creatures. That's basically just rearranging the furniture. It's like, it's hybridization. And so you're still going to, even if your universe is rearranged a little bit, the differences are going to be superficial because you're taking something that you already know exists and you're putting it on something else. Or you're moving it over here. Oh, it's going to be just like a T-Rex, but it has wings and it flies. It's a totally new idea. It's a dragon. 
yeah, it's it's not something we have in our waking life, but you're combining things that are, exist in our waking life. Like you're not creating something out of thin air. You're not creating something wholly new. And that's why fantasy and sci-fi is so attractive to us is that it doesn't just exist in this abstract world. It's somebody basically recombining things that already exist. Like we already have a point of reference for the things that most fantasy and sci-fi use. And maybe there's an argument that they're in moments of true genius, somebody comes up with something completely new. But the Bible quote of there's nothing new under the sun plays into this. The Bible quote turned general platitude. But you know, what's so funny about that quote showing up in the Bible, there's nothing new under the sun. The fact that that's actually in the Bible tells us that that wasn't new when the Bible said it. The idea that there's nothing new under the sun was not even a new idea itself when the Bible referenced it. That was already something that people were continually dealing with. But I think it plays into Alan Watts' point that you do end up rearranging the universe, but you end up with the same universe. Because how can you understand a universe that doesn't use your universe as its point of reference? You really can't do it. And if you can, talk to me. And what you end up doing, like when I try to imagine something like a new entity, like let's say I want to imagine an entity that does not exist in our world and is not simply a hybrid of existing entities. It's not just a dinosaur with wings. You know, when I try to imagine something new, I end up thinking of like something formless. You go, oh, it's formless. It's an amorphous, formless entity. But your idea of what a a formless, amorphous entity is, is very much rooted in this universe, just as everything else is. Because chances are you will imagine something gaseous. You will imagine some sort of swirling mist. You will still have a visual point of reference. And even though you've recontextualized it, you've given it a certain shape, it's still a product of this universe. And so you very well might end up recreating what already exists. And so that South Park episode pointed that out where it's like when the hippies are recreating their own society and they're like, they're describing the positions of the people. This is a guy who he just bakes bread all day. It's this brand new idea. He just sits there baking bread. And the kid says it's called a baker. But it kind of plays into what I've talked about before of like sometimes we need to get descriptive again. Sometimes we get so used to that word that we have for something or that visual we have for what somebody looks like, what kind of person does this, that sometimes I think it can be effective to say, he's just a guy who bakes bread. He's just a guy who bakes bread. He's just a guy who bakes bread. You know, sometimes that is good for us. It's good for our minds. It's like showing your work where it's like instead of just calling that guy a baker, sometimes it's actually effective to think about what he does. And in the case of a baker, it's silly because the word baker isn't loaded. Nobody's trying to challenge what a baker is. So we really don't need to to like sit there and go, you know, I never really thought about the fact that a baker is just a guy who bakes bread. But I've told the story on here where there was a, a fire. Somebody tried to light a fire at my high school when I was there. And... There was a fire alarm. We all had to go outside. And then that becomes like a hot topic, like no pun intended, where kids are like talking about what was what was the reason? Was it a drill? 
Was there an actual fire? And word spread that a poster on the wall had been lit on fire because our school would just hang these posters down the hallways, probably like motivational posters. I don't know what they were, but somebody had lit one on fire. It was the rumor. And there was this Vietnamese janitor who spoke very little English. And he happened to walk by us after the fire drill. And we said, hey, what was the what was the fire? We heard somebody lit a poster on fire and he looked really confused and he looked at us. He goes, a poster? And keep in mind, he had a broken Vietnamese accent and I have not practiced that, so I'm going to not do it. But he said, a poster? No, no, it was one of those pieces of paper that hangs on the walls in broken English. He goes, no, no, a poster? No, no, paper that hangs on the wall. You know, and it's like, we laughed because it was like, Oh, yeah, like it was a poster. But in his mind, like for whatever reason, I mean, and he was a fairly recent immigrant, I think, you know, he he spoke very little English. He was Vietnamese. And he must not have learned the word poster. Even though it's something we all take for granted that a piece of paper that hangs on the wall is called a poster. To the Vietnamese janitor. It was a piece of paper that hangs on the wall. So it's kind of that, you know, sometimes it's important to remember that because it's like we're so attached to the idea that that's a poster that we forget about the fact that you can, if you were forced to actually describe it to a foreigner, like if you were forced to explain to that guy what a poster is, you would use the exact description he gave us, which is how he saw it, a piece of paper that hangs on the wall. Maybe he, maybe they have a word for that in Vietnamese. I'm sure Vietnam has its own word for poster. But that's, that was just, it blew my mind. The Vietnamese janitor simply describing a poster as a piece of paper that hangs on the wall blew my mind more than any drug could. Does that mean that I'm stupid? I don't know, but it blew my mind. <laughs> but it plays into all of this where it's like, you know, sometimes it's good to remember the description of something because you're so attached to the word you have, which is itself just a placeholder. And, you know, you can almost imagine that in that Alan Watts sense or that South Park sense, Alan Watts in the South Park. Uh, but you can almost imagine that in this sense where it's like somebody comes out of the woodwork and they're like, I've, I've come up with this new creation. It's a piece of paper that hangs on the wall. I'm recreating society and we, we invented this new idea. It's a piece of paper that hangs on the wall. What you'd want to say is, yeah, it's called a poster. So it goes both ways. Where it's like people can easily trick themselves into thinking they're inventing something new when they're, you know, here's another cliche, reinventing the wheel. So that idea has always been there. The Bible talks about it. You know, Alan Watts and all, and all of his different journeys and explorations of the mind, he came to the same conclusion. South Park reinforces that. And it's the risk you run when you try to completely deconstruct everything. Is that you might go through this useless turmoil only to end up in the same place. But that might be necessary. I mean, more and more, I become convinced that humanity has to kind of deconstruct its surroundings and then reconstruct them. But it makes it difficult when you see it play out along the same exact lines. And somebody tries to say that it's new. And it's like, well, it's not new. We've, we've been there before. We shouldn't, because I mean, what it comes down to is like, we shouldn't have to relearn these lessons. 
sometimes when you have to relearn a lesson, it's frustrating. But I don't see any way out. Humanity has to relearn the same lessons over and over again. And then it becomes so smug. It believes that it learned them. But then all it takes is somebody deconstructing them. And sometimes that deconstruction has a valid point. You know, sometimes deconstructing yourself is what you need to do. But sometimes you'll find that, oh, you know what? I'm back where I was. I'm, I'm right back where I was in that regard. I mean, even just when you feel yourself losing your own identity. Like having gone through phases of my life where I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm really not interested in that thing anymore. In fact, I don't even know if I like it anymore. And then give it a year or give it two years and you find yourself interested again. You find yourself engaged by that again. You realize it's still a part of you. So I think that can be helpful on a personal level. And just to tie this episode up, you can do that by listening to those phantoms in your head. And I don't know what it's like for somebody who truly has delusional voices. I don't know what that's like to actually have delu- like voices that are telling you to do things, voices that are directing you in some way. I'm just talking about those natural little... Those little phantoms that show up whenever you think a thought, whenever you make a statement, whenever you think about doing something and you're imagining the counterpoint. That is helpful to deconstructing yourself, but I don't even know that that's what it's doing. I mean, it can. When you think a thought and then you immediately think of a counterpoint and you imagine that counterpoint coming from somebody outside of yourself, that can deconstruct you. That can rock your foundation. But I believe it's ultimately constructive. You know, I believe that it will actually help you build yourself into something that you can live with, because that seems to be what most people are dealing with. You know, being somebody that you can live with. And you might end up finding like, you know, it's, it's something that a lot of people find, like people who have been through addiction, where they're like, they've basically been completely deconstructed. And then they realize, oh, you know what, like all along... It was just like eating a meal three times a day and getting married and being happy when the sun's out that matters. I'm back where I started. Like, I'm back to where I was before I went down the tunnel of addiction. But having gone through that, you appreciate it more. It's what I talk about when I say breaking the rules to appreciate the rules. Not as a fan of the rules, but to appreciate why they exist. So it's sometimes breaking the rules that makes you appreciate why they came in, came to being. And when you remove the rules, you will inevitably end up creating many of the rules that already existed. You will end up recreating the universe. But those phantoms can guide you. They can help you be a person who you want to live with. Because you know what the arguments are against, you, you know what the counter arguments are, <clears throat> you know what the counterpoints are. And that in turn, I think, makes you less fearful as you go about your life. It makes you more prepared. But you have to be able to stop that feedback loop. You have to be able to stop these phantom counterpoints 
from completely destroying and deconstructing you and making everything seem totally unreal. And I do worry that we're in a world where that's more common now. Because we have access to that same function online. So the same thing that is playing out in your head is also playing out online. And so we have to learn many of the same lessons there. Because you even think about you know, the idea of recreating the universe and coming up with the same thing, coming up with the same universe. Like you think about the internet where it was this totally revolutionary idea that gave people the ability to use any image to represent themselves and say anything they wanted. But they still default to a human representation of themselves. They still want a picture. They still want an avatar, whether it's an actual picture of who they actually are or something else, a cartoon, some sort of other image. You know, it's like they still end up creating something that is representative of a human being, even though you're not really forced to. There's nothing about the internet that forces you to be a human being. But it does in some way kind of, you know, the internet does in some way recreate our world as it actually is. It isn't as revolutionary as it seems because we see some of the same patterns that play out in humanity play out there, but on a much larger scale. And that's what we're having trouble with is the scale of it. So something to keep in mind, you know, are you, by deconstructing something, are you in the end just going to end up recreating the same universe? And sometimes I think you need to do that. Sometimes I think you do need to try to recreate the universe, first deconstruct it and then recreate it. But it shouldn't be a huge shock when you end up with something similar, if not the same, to what was already there. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children can run free. So take.